0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and um, I'm delighted to have your company again. Now, today I've got a fascinating guest, Tiggy Trithowan. Now, Tiggy's had a long and uh, prestigious career in um, television, um, and she's now a fellow podcaster. She podcasts on something called the Draycott Diaries, which we'll come to and explain as we go all through the program. But as well as that, Tiggy has wrestled with uh, growing blindness and uh, uh, visual impairment for quite some, some years now, and has now virtually got to the point where she's got little or no sight whatsoever. And she's got quite a story to tell about her struggle with that, her coming to terms with that, and a lot of the issues that she'd like to share with us about her and fellow people without sight who can effectively um, have the struggles in the world that they are having and what we need to think about. Tiggy, welcome.
1: Hi, David. Thank you for having me.
0: You're very, very welcome. Now, okay, let's start with the, the back story, all right, a, a little bit. You, As I said, you, you, you've been involved with television for many years. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what you did, who you did it with, what you were doing, and sort of give us a flavor of that?
1: I will. <laughs> I will David, Actually, it's, this is a very good exercise for me to to think back but in a nutshell I always wanted to work in television, I had relatives who had worked in it before me um, but I wanted my own path so uh, pretty bad at school because I have hearing impairment uh, which I have had from birth oh. and uh, so I uh, worked my way up, went to theatre college did a stage management training, got myself into theatre, was working happily in the theatre for about five years and made the transition into television and a little bit of uh, film as well. Um, It all culminated, because it's obviously a long, eclectic career, in 10 years as the event manager for BBC Antiques Roadshow. And rather bizarrely, I was doing the Antiques Roadshow in the summer and then in the winter months, I was working on a series for the Discovery channel called Man vs. Wild with Bear Grills. So that took me off to some pretty remote, pretty tricky locations across the world, including, you know, Belizean jungles where they train the British Army. Uh, had to climb many mountains with Bear, often with him pushing my bottom up the mountain, but uh, which I'm sure many people would pay good money for, but not myself. Uh, so it was fairly, um, it was a very eclectic. And um, my colleagues, my work colleagues used to call me intrepid because it was believed that there was nothing I wouldn't do in terms of challenges. Um, so that was kind of, in a nutshell, David, that was hmm. my career.
0: Well, tell uh, me some of, the, some of the duties that you had, I mean, on the production side. I mean, what, what were the kind of things that you actually had to do, say, daily basis when you were abroad, for example?
1: Well, the event manager role for BBC Antics, Roger mm. was ways tougher than Bear Grills, because I was in charge of uh, at least 6,000 people coming to an event on a weekly basis. Mm. Of the health and safety uh, of all the public, And also the experts and Fiona Bruce, making sure that everybody got to the right place at the right time. But when I first started on the roadshow, it was very contained and they just filmed it in sports halls. So you could get away with just really um, a thousand people coming to the show. But they wanted to expand it and take it on location. That's Mm -hmm. when the level of um, hazard rose. So in the time I was there, I built up a very high security risk. You know, I had undercover security, had security that were visible, very good medical team, an armourer, because we once had somebody arrive with a loaded gun, (laughs) unintentionally. But after that, we quickly put uh, some measures in place. So basically, Dave, they brought me in to just really raise the the whole kind of, uh, let's say, smoother running of the front of house side of it, but it very much touched onto the television side as well. Um, and Bear Grills was uh, in a way more structured because I'd have three weeks to work out what countries go to. I then find a fixer in that country would work out what uh, stunts, say to speak, uh, Bear could, could do, like high mountains, you know, abseil waterfalls. There was also quite a um, high risk with aircraft because he would always arrive as a parachutist. So we would have to film air to air, which means we have two helicopters quite close in proximity. Okay. And I'm quite highly trained in uh, facilitating stunts, not doing them, but facilitating them because I, I've had to, to work on programmes like Bear and other programmes that have needed stunts. Like I worked on a programme in the past called 999. Which was one of the pioneers for reconstruction and using stunts to recreate real emergencies so um, i'm quite'm um, quite a diverse cookie, I think, but I guess I would say if I'm anything I'm really in charge of, of getting things done, keeping things on time and keeping things on budget and when you're working in really remote areas uh, where you've you know got weather extreme weather conditions and um, it was quite dangerous. And also, when I was doing Bear grills, they didn't have very much safety in place. So I was responsible for insisting on taking out proper rape, rope safety experts and getting the right certification for, um, let's say, aircraft we were using. But I would like to say here now that there was always a little bit of scoffing on the programme about did Bear really do the stunts and stuff. Well, I can tell you now he really does. He does he's a good bloke and he does, it is what it says on the tin. And we had great fun. Mm. Um, but it mm. wasn't without a huge challenge.
0: Well, both of really, these, both of these sort of situations—antiques, Roadshow and Bear grills—I mean, you couldn't have got along, could you, if you hadn't been a pretty good people person?
1: I would credit myself as being an excellent people person, um, and I would credit the fact that I've always had quite a lot of sensitivity. Maybe because you know, even with hearing loss before I lost my sight, I think unless you've had challenges in your life. Uh, you're not very interesting, frankly. And I could pick people out in the queue who I knew uh, needed a bit of help, you know. And um, I was also able to uh, look at locations like castles and things and and manage it also for people who were less able-bodied, had sensory loss. Um, So I think I was a jolly good egg, really, in that. But can I just say, and I know you have listeners abroad, Henry VIII did not build castles with disability in mind.
0: (laughs) Right. Good point. A very good point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you went all around the country with the Antiques Roadshow, and you went to many, many different locations abroad with beer grills, but also before that, you cut your teeth, didn't you, in terms of various other sort of um, production situations when it was either film or television. And obviously you built up quite a reputation. Now, as your eyesight got worse, you had to come to sort of various decisions, didn't you? And it must have been a difficult situation because at the time, I suspect you were very well respected, very well thought of, and you could do a damn good job. So effectively, there came a point, didn't there, where you really had to think about what was the best thing for your future and when was the best thing to begin to stop doing some things. I mean, what was that time like for you? I can't imagine it was very nice.
1: It was hell.
0: Hmm.
1: Because, um, I mean, I've, I've, I'll i go back a bit from the date I stepped away, but I did step away from television in 2017 because the sight loss had got so bad. But... Um, the diagnosis happened was beginning a long time before that. So I was working um, on programs, as some of the ones I've mentioned, uh, with diminishing sight, mm-hmm. which is terrifying. I mean, when you're losing your sight, I don't want to underestimate it, it's terrifying because you don't know when it's going to completely go. You don't know if you're going to go into a black room. Is it going to be suffocating? Am I going to still be able to see daylight? I mean, it really is terrifying story and what was making it just a little bit worse was I was working on these programs always on contract I've never been staff because I wanted to be light-footed and be able to work on diverse programs um, and so uh, certainly for the last five years leading up to 2017 I was having to pretend I wasn't going blind and that I mean going blind anyway is pretty tiring Doing a show where you are managing a large group of people's health and safety is very challenging. Mm-hmm. You add a dabble of you're losing your sight as well. Then you were in a real, real journey to a car crash. I mean, that's what it Let fa- me
0: just clarify something, though. I mean, I know from talking to you before that there was never any point where you would have allowed anybody to be at risk uh, because of your failing eyesight. I know you were very, very careful about that. And I think people should hear that just, I mean, because essentially, you know, um, it was terrifying for you, but you always did um, things in a way that was safe for other people. Is that, that's fair, isn't it?
1: And, I th- and thank you for bringing that up. I mean, I was writing uh, risk assessments the, the size of Tolstoy's War and Peace mm-hmm. for every programme I've ever done. I mean, apparently my, uh, my risk assessments are legendary. Um, if they weren 't so dull, I would actually print them, um, but I mean they are really, really good because I really, really know what i 'm doing and because of that, daily, thank you for bringing that up. I would always make sure that um, i mean what i 'm really good at is delegating and I would always have a team working with me, um, so I would make sure absolutely every dot was dotted every i or rather every i was dotted, every t was crossed because i have a huge sense of morality and if I felt anybody anybody had any injury because of because of something I didn't declare uh then I couldn't have lived with myself so if anything David, I think I was better at my job because of it because I was over cautious okay. so everyone what they was doing you know for example if there was a fire or an emergency or somebody drove a car onto the unit Everybody knew what they had to do. And I would talk to everybody before we ever recorded any program and tell everybody what their, their job was. So I think it made me better. It made me more cautious.
0: How were other people around you? I mean, I'm not talking about the final time, you know, the final period when you gave up uh, the television. But in, in the, the couple of years, if you like, before that, how, how were the team with you about it? Did they really understand? What was happening?
1: No, you can't. Uh, You know, you just can't, David. Unless you've experienced it or you are experiencing, you can't. And those I trusted enough to divulge a little bit uh, were frightened of it. They didn't Mm. want to know about it. They. Um, just in case, it you know, I don't think it's in case it rubbed off on them. But you know, they were friends with me. Uh, they, I was in some cases their boss, um, and there was real fear. Uh, I think there is fear around it. Um, you know, this is not life threatening; it's life limiting. But people still don't understand it. They understand the diagnosis of a condition, but sensory loss is a very different ball game, so to speak. So. The only people I did talk to about it, who I did trust would make it very plain to me that I should keep quiet mm. about it because um, they felt my job would be vulnerable if people mm. found out.
0: Mm. Well, move uh, on then. Move on then, if you like, to, to the point where you, you made the decision. And, and that's the point. The point was you did make the decision yourself to stop. And, and what the atmosphere and the situation was surrounding that. Could you say a little bit? Because I, I do know from talking to you that you found that very traumatic.
1: I did, David, because I had to make declaration when I first had the diagnosis. And remember, this is going back many years before 2017. And um, the BBC were very supportive and, 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 and were throughout the process. But, of course, they are a big organisation and their human resources go down things in in a certain route. And when I first uh, made that um, coming out, so to speak, they sent me for a test. Um, They then um, marketed out their assessments, I think to an outside company. Uh, So I turned up with assessment and it was probably the worst thing I've ever, ever had to do in my life. I mean, I felt like I was having a very personal female examination in front of the whole room. Mm. Um, The guy who was assessing me laughed because he said most people came to see him to try and get out of work. I was the only person to see him who was trying to stay in work. But I think what I'm saying is any assessment that you're sent on will be by the large organisation that's sending you. It's not a personal choice of yours to go and have an independent. It's not independent. So you feel the pressure. I mean, I actually physically uh, threw up afterwards because I was so shaken by the whole experience but then move on another three years Um, a new regime came in and saw this assessment uh, had been taken place and asked me to go through all these hoops again they also mentioned my hearing and that they've been talking to the team and were asking me to go on more tests and I remembered that horrible time and I just couldn't do it again I just I couldn't do it for my own morality um, I felt so shamed, David. I think I think that's one word that happens when these sort of things, when your life starts caving in. Um, mm-hmm. There's a mm-hmm. massive, massive, massive amount of shame that comes with this. Um, you know, I felt like a dirty person. And that, you know, um, whether that was self-induced in my thoughts, or whether it was impressed on me, I don't know. But that's I'm
0: telling you how it felt. No, no, and that was the backdrop. Um, there you were, feeling what you've just described. Um, and then you thought, well, to hell with this. I, I, I'm going to make the decision here. Um, and so you did, um, to stop. But that also prompted quite a lot more upheaval in your life. Um, and so in other words, the kind of, if you like, the body blows didn't quite stop there. Um, do you want to just say a little bit about what happened to you before we talk about what happened next?
1: I like the analogy of body blows. Um, but, it, you know, the, because actually the body blows then turned out to me being on the ground and then people kicking, still kicking me because, of course, I went from hero to zero. I'd always been freelance. Mm. I lost everything. Uh, I couldn't afford my mortgage, so I had to sell my home. I By then, I had a lot of debt, so... Um, any money I got from once I sold my house had to go to paying the debts. Um, I was beyond depressed and and was on that pinnacle everybody says you know, of is it really really worth going on? And it was only because uh, I had a wonderful accountant uh, who would phone me up at eight o'clock every morning and say get out of bed, just get out of bed. And I think that's what saved my life. Um, but no no the body blows kept coming because of mm. course that's what. It isn't just, oh dear, you know here's my diagnosis. it affects your life, and then of course, uh, I rejected my family, I rejected my friends, you know it, it is the, all the catalogue that I'm afraid is is well documented it really does happen so no, a,
0: yeah, sorry,, yeah. I was just going to say i I mean I got a total understanding from how you describe it there of the of the the depths that you felt that you had gone to, and if you like, the stone that you'd crawled under. But effectively, at the same time, we now know that there are at least three hundred and fifty thousand people in this country with um, significant visual impairment, right up through to full blindness, and you've now got an absolute first-hand, excellent knowledge, albeit very traumatic knowledge, of what it can do to people and what it analogous to as you said, you know, that whether it's the, the, the guilt, whether it's the, the body blows, or whether it's just feeling so terribly dirty and tired and, and kind of put upon um, for something that is totally not your fault. It is just some kind of crazy DNA lottery. So, okay, I don't want to dwell too much on that because I want to, I, I am aware of other good things that are going on but at the same time I think it was very important for people to hear that that is a point that you just couldn't help reaching so there you were effectively down on your knees let's let's keep it that way rather well, the body blows down here we're getting here everywhere okay but effectively then you began slowly to pull your life back together and Do you want to just say a little bit about the things that managed to give you some hope again? The things that have managed to give you some feeling of worthwhileness, if you like, again. Um, And then we'll start talking about some of the other problems that you've discovered that people in similar situations might be going through. But then we'll go on to the good stuff, what you're doing about the podcast. All right. So just a little bit more about how you began to feel a little bit more human again.
1: Well, again, it's quite a long story, but I would say initially a short course of antidepressants because, I mean, I was suicidal, so I was Mm. really, really, really poorly. Uh, I'm not a person who runs to pills in any, any state, but for me, they were magic. I mean, it really, I tell you why, because it just gave me a little bit of breath of time to feel a little bit better. And if you feel a little bit better and you're sleeping a little bit better, you make a little bit better decision. So I think that was the process. And I think once I'd sold my house and paid my debts, I mean, that did feel good in a way because I felt I was managing it. Um, I've now moved into a tiny little flat, Uh, but it's gorgeous. I live above a farmhouse and I've got fields all around me. So I think what I would say, David, is that I've reduced my life massively to a little nucleus now, but actually it's much more positive because everything's much more controlled um, so I think once I started managing it um, That started to feel better because I was doing something about it um, and then um, the, the the I think the other thing happened was that I um, I met a nice person through social services because um, once I got my diagnosis the they, the social services get in contact and he took me around places and started working with me and showing me how you know life still goes on getting on trains all the practical stuff he then suggested a guide dog
0: Mm -hmm.
1: i had said well you know i still got a little bit of sight you know don't you have to be totally blind he said no this is not the case um and so that process began um it was a long process and um, I'm very happy to say the result of the process is snoring behind me now uh, in the, my gorgeous guide dog called Jackie. Um, but I think, um, I think reducing my life, making everything smaller, because when you work at, you know, when I was high, flying high in telly. I was earning good money, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think I reduced my my, my life to a much more manageable size. I paid off my debts. Um, I still, believe it or not, have a little bit of savings in my bank account, not a huge amount, but enough. So my life is much smaller. And because I now have guide dog, um, I started meeting um, other individuals with sight loss. And there is nothing in this world that is better for your soul than meeting somebody who's empathetic with you. And frankly, somebody who's got it worse than you. I mean, my, some of my closest friends now have been totally blind from birth. They don't even have any perception of light. I've never met a blind person yet who feels sorry for themselves. Um, I have learned new skills now from people who are totally blind. Um, and I think entering that world, you know, where in television I had to be quiet about it all the time and and, and hide it. Um, when I came out from under my stone, I noticed, you know, there were other people who, many, many people, but they weren't under stones. They were standing on mountains. They were skiing down mountains. They were going on, dancing on ice. They were doing cookery programs and stuff like this. And you know, I thought, well, actually, so I think the intrepid bit kicked in again. I thought, well, I've been given this hand. It's not life threatening. It's only life limiting. Let's make this a challenge.
0: Okay. Just two seconds. I don't want to run out of time without getting everything I wanted to ask you about. But, I mean, I, 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 I was fascinated. The other day when we talked on the phone, you were telling me that you had a hospital appointment. Okay. Fine, okay. People do. And that it was uh, to do with your eyesight. And um, you had received the appointment. And you, uh, as people normally do, you booked the transport yourself. I know, laughingly, an entire ambulance turned up for you and you were the only person sort of rattling around in it like a pea in in a tin, but never mind. In you get with Jackie. Off you go to the hospital. But when you get to the hospital, correct me if I'm wrong, they said, no, 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 this was just a telephone appointment. Didn't you read the small print? I mean, yeah. Could you get more ironic than that? And, uh, and, uh, and of course, then you came back in the same ambulance, which of course have been hanging around waiting for just you, um, and, and, and off you go. But it's little things like that, that make you wonder how um, aware, if you like, people are about situations. That of course there are bigger issues I know to do with some of the bigger charities, but also to do, and let's be honest here, you, I think you wanna say something about this if I remember. When you go to get to the point where you've virtually lost all sight, there really isn't that much around. You said social services. Okay, we all know that. And, you know, as a social worker myself, that's very nice to hear that somebody actually was there for you. But generally speaking, there's very little else around to actually take you through that maze of new awareness and understanding and understanding. Um, responsibilities, and of, also of all, all the various kind of things that you might be um, entitled to. So, you know, what do you think about that? Well, I think I'd like to give this a bit of kind of
1: um, context. More recently, like last November, I went for an MRI scan. Um, I presently got 10% sight in my left eye. I've got nothing in my right eye, nothing at all. Um, and I went from an MRI, and the results of the MRI are that I will lose my sight completely, that I will lose this 10%. Now, that is a really emotionally, it was like being shot because I thought, well, if I can hang on to what I've got now, I can get around, I've got Jackie. You know, life is manageable to lose it completely is terrifying because I don't know, if I'll have, as I said, light perception. Um, so, I left the hospital um, after the results. Uh, I didn't, you know, cast me back 10 years to the how I felt that time. And very quickly, I went to that place, and I thought, well, no, I'm not going to this time because I've got tools. Well, oh, David, I think I've lost your... Okay, you okay, yeah, we're okay. Um, I thought, I've lost my tool. You know, I've got tools now, which is fantastic. I know what to do. I don't have to panic. So, I then phoned around all organizations that I knew for sight loss. And um, and uh, was horrified that none of them seemed to have emotional support. They would do everything, but you know, housing, technical support, etc. But I couldn't find any emotional support. So, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to name names, but I have to in this instance. I found out the RNIB; they are the biggest organisation. That's
0: the Royal uh, National Institute for the Blind. Thank yeah. you.
1: And, ooh, I would like to also say have been supportive in all those other areas I've just mentioned. But to have any emotional support, I will have to wait nine months. That is the waiting, that's current waiting list for the RNIB is nine months minimum.
0: And I find, be- that, I find that very interesting. I mean, I, I, I get the part you said, you've praised them for all the other thing, for the other things that they do. But the emotional support is such a huge thing to underpin somebody going through the changes that you're going through. And I've got to say, looking at their, um, their company figures and company accounts, there's tens of millions of pounds in, in, in these charities. And Guide Dogs for the Blind are the same in some ways. But, I mean, effectively, you'd think that there would be some degree of planning to pay for, recruit, and offer what you've just outlined you feel is most needed. So I, I think there should be a bit of a challenge going out there.
1: And it's a challenge that I want to to take up because what's happening now, David, because I have such a positive approach, which seems slightly ironic after Mm -hmm. all the stuff I've told you, I get a lot of phone calls from people saying, will you speak to my friend or my aunt or their child or whatever, because they've just had a diagnosis and read their eyesight um, and, and you're so positive about it. And they they would really need to talk to somebody and I'm afraid David because one has to protect oneself in this as well I haven't always said yes because I'm still on a journey here you know I'm still going to that dark place and I don't mean that in any way kind of as a part I mean I have really really bad days with this um so I have to protect myself but, but but I want to be able to say right well this is what you need to do phone this number or that number and it's just not out there Um, Mm. luckily I have a local charity whereby I'm talking to a very nice gentleman but it's more of an empathetic thing because he's got sight loss um, and has counselling skills but it's not what you need if you think you're going to be going into a dark cupboard for the rest of your life you need
0: something with a little bit more body I think that's a pretty solid marker to put down here that you know you've just articulated uh, that I mean, I I cannot understand um, how people haven't cottoned on to that level of need. However, um, we are getting to the point that I don't want to miss the time that we have available and talk about the nice things that you're doing now, the positives that you're doing now. You are a podcaster. You you live in a smallish Somerset village called Draycott. And you have set up a podcast that's called Draycott Diaries, in which you, interestingly, and, and I must admit, fascinatingly, go around the village and for those, and most people do, want to talk to you, talk to them just generally about their stories, about their history, village life. The whole, if you like, kind of um, composition of an English village and I, I find it absolutely fascinating. It's, it's certainly galvanized you. And it's certainly kind of been quite, a, uh, it's now quite a sort of a, a thing of standing within the village. I know, you know, lots of people, you know, like any place, some do, some don't in terms of actually get it, understand it, join in, whatever. But I also know if I can just share one of your secrets that you've got an idea maybe of spreading this podcast a bit to maybe take in just village life generally and doesn't have to be restricted to the village that you've actually put on the map a bit more in Draycott. And uh, I think that's fabulous. And so I think, you know, the idea of now developing further this podcast, and again I'll say it Draycott Diaries, effectively to a wider audience in a wider geography. And possibly with a wider remit, I think, too, rather than, you know, the way you, you had to deal with it up to now. I think it would be fabulous, and for not just for here, but internationally, you know, for people that want to actually just dip their toe into English village life. So, I mean, great luck with that. And, um, I mean, I'm going to talk to you about it further because I love the idea. And if I can help you, I will. But um, is that a fair representation of how you begin to see things happening now? It, perfect. I think you were incredibly eloquent. And
1: perfect. I would like to just picture the scene a little bit where I live in Draycott. It's the strawberry capital of the world because hmm. I live at the foot of the Mendip Hills, looking straight out to the Somerset level. So it was always south facing, so it was perfect for strawberry growing. So for hundreds of years, this village, has grown strawberries. And there used to be a steam train that used to take them
0: all
1: over the country. So I love that kind of sense of romance. And when I was doing talks about my career in draughty village halls, where the village were always so sweet and would all turn out to listen to me banging on, I looked out at them and I thought, do you know what? Everybody in this room has a life story. And if I ever have time, I'm gonna go out and find out. And that's exactly what I'm doing. And with the help of um, some uh, technological geniuses, um, I've been able to get it together. I'm not alone in this. I should say there's a team of us. There's two retired engineers in the village uh, who are my editors because that would be one step too far. I have a lovely friend who does the any kind of graphics that I need. My brother, uh, he arranges the music. And I have a guide dog that gets me places. And frankly, is a wonderful icebreaker. So it's a... it's
0: the opposite of a perfect storm, whatever okay. that. Is. No, no, it's fabulous. I mean, I, I'm more power to your elbow, as they say. I mean, I think effectively I can't wait to see how you actually expand and develop this um, because already you've got a following with the Draycott Diaries. But, I mean, goodness knows what this is going to lead. So, I mean, effectively, good luck to you. And, and I think, in, if you like, in context of what you were talking about, if you like, the kind of the the pretty rough ride you had, but also the the fantastic memories you had before that rough ride. I think this is a a lovely top and tail to a career. and, And effectively, you've got, you know, plenty more in you, plenty more career to come. So both Tiggy, to you and to Jackie snoring in the background, effectively, thank you ever so much for being on my podcast and, um, well, I'll look forward to talking to you again in the future, and we are going to keep in touch. So, But for now, I've got to say thanks ever so much. And for people listening, please remember, SpeakPipe on the front page there. All you have to do is click it once, and you can leave me a a voice message about about this podcast, the Social World podcast, and uh, ideas for the future or comments about this particular episode. So other than that, thank you very much, Tiggy.
1: Oh, David, I've loved it. It's been so nice to talk to you. Do you know what? I feel lighter for doing it, so thank you.
0: Okay, brilliant. Thank you.